Now, we're coming to one of the divisions in the book. And it's important that we, that we recognize what God's been doing because, man, it's so amazing. We're, we're coming to the end. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll finish with all the history that the Bible has to tell us about the nation of Israel. The history, the, the chronological history will be over. Now, we're, we're still going to go through prophets and hear what they had to say, but each one of the prophets that we read about is ministering during one of the periods we've been studying as we worked our way through the histories. Okay, So, so that brings us from uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st uh, and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. And then... At that point, we finish the chronology, okay, of, of the Old Testament, and, and we come to the end. And we saw when Nehemiah, one of the important things about Nehemiah is Nehemiah was the guy who started the stopwatch. Nehemiah was the guy who fulfilled the, the prophecy in Daniel that said, Messiah is going to come in a specific time, and you'll know that time because there will be a decree to send the people who are in captivity, Daniel's in captivity in Babylon, there'll be a decree to send us back to build the city and the wall, not the temple. Three decrees to build the temple, one decree to build the city and the wall. So when that decree happened, from Artaxerxes, I think March 14th, 445 B.C., something like that, click, stopwatch started. And at the, at the prescribed time, now whether you, whether you believe Sir Robert Anderson had it right or you think somebody else has it right in how they figure it, doesn't make any difference. Daniel 9 told us there was a day Jesus was going to, Messiah was going to walk in and it was the time to start counting was when that decree came. When Artaxerxes told Nehemiah, go build the city. So that's what Nehemiah did. But, and, and Nehemiah, you know, here's the sad thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah's heart is to be in the land of his birth. But, but he's grown up in Babylon. Well, but now Babylon's not owned or run by the Babylonians. It's run by the Persians. Um, so it's the second kingdom. Daniel's still there. So Nehemiah knows Daniel. Guaranteed. Absolute positive guarantee that they know each other. Because one of them's a cupbearer. Nehemiah's a prime minister of Babylon during the reign of Artaxerxes. And Daniel was high in the government uh, under both uh, Darius and uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. So they had to know each other. There's, they're in the same cabinet. You guys with me? So I think Nehemiah was stoked. I think Nehemiah understood that God was beginning to do something, that the deliverer was coming. He always wanted his people to live their lives every day looking for that deliverance. That the the, the deliverer is going to come. One day, somebody's going to show up and show us a way that I don't have to bring a sacrifice every single morning and every single night. Because every day I'm reminded that my sins are not gone. Tomorrow I got to take care of them again. But the Bible, the promise of the scriptures spoke of a day. Daniel said there's a day when Messiah is going to put away sin. And Nehemiah, he got to be part of that. And he comes and he begins construction. And I'm not going to go back over all that stuff. He starts construction and as soon as you start doing something for God, who's the next guy on the scene? You start doing something for God, the next dude on the scene is somebody from the devil. Probably not the devil. He's busy in the Middle East somewhere, but he's got other people. So immediately, you start doing something for the Lord, there's going to, you're going to come under attack. Guaranteed, you're going to come under attack. And how the attacks start? Ridicule and calling them names and saying, you're, what you're doing is no good. Discouragement being cast on the people. But Nehemiah, I love about Nehemiah, he didn't listen. He didn't talk back to them. He didn't fight. He prayed. They started yipping in his ear, and he just prayed. Lord, make me strong. God, help me. You know, get me through. Give him wisdom. And, and all along the way, Nehemiah doesn't falter. He doesn't stumble. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of action. He, he wasn't just somewhere praying in a room. He was praying on a wall, laying mortar, setting stone. He was working. And he was praying. So the enemy tried to move in. But he caught the enemy you know, he was a sheepdog. He saw the wolf come in, try to snatch up the sheep. He took care of it. 
He took care of them coming on the inside. Then they tried to up their game on the outside. He didn't play. He just prayed. He didn't fight. He just prayed. He kept going before the Lord. And so when we come to chapter 7, and we just got to add a brief moment to look at chapter 7, that's the end. The wall is done. It says in the beginning, the first couple of verses, he hung the doors, the gates. And we talked about it last time. Remember, he appointed guards. A gate is no good if there's not a guard there. And not only did he appoint guards, he appointed watchmen. So the guards in the day, the watchmen in the night, watching for the enemy, making sure that everything's safe. And we still have that responsibility. We talked about that last time, how God wants us to be watchmen on the wall. The same call that he gave to Ezekiel, he gives to us. To Ezekiel, he said, look, if I called you as a watchman, he said to Ezekiel, I call you as a watchman. So if someone dies whom you have not warned, that I told you to warn, that his blood's on your hand. You're my watchman. You're my watchman. Jesus said the exact same thing in Matthew 28. Go into all the world, make disciples of all men. There's no way around that. That commission is not for just the, the few, the proud, the, the Marines. That's not what it is. It's for, it's for all believers. We are that watchman on the wall. And you go through chapter 7, and I'm not going to go through it all, but it gives the numbers of the people and how many the families grew to. And the point of chapter 7 is we start to see the blessing of God. Even though they're in captivity, even though they're struggling, and, and I'm not going to tell you there's not a lot of cool nuggets in here. There's a lot of cool nuggets in here. But, but um, I, I'll, I'll kill you. Well, not literally, but I, I'll lose you all if I start going through all the names and, and laying out the nuggets. So I'm going to challenge you guys. There's some nuggets in here and some things that you want to go through. But they're going to be listed by families. And they're going to be listed by hometowns. Because, here's the main thing. Because they had to prove they were part of the family to be in Israel. And there's a lot of people today who aren't sure they're part of the family of God. They had to prove their genealogy. They couldn't say, well, I, you know, I know this guy. He's No. There was one, you had to be part of the 12, right? The 12 tribes, the 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 13 tribes, if you go through Ephraim and Manasseh, but the same kind of concept. So you've got, you had to show you were a part. For you and I, there's only one way to salvation, right? And it's through whom? Jesus. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved. So, so all men must be saved, and they must be saved through... If they don't have Jesus, they don't have nothing. They're not in the family. Get it? They're not a part. It's not, well, they're a pretty good person, but they don't, they just, they're a little twisted on who Jesus is. Then they're not saved. There's only one way, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, so this is all listed out. We come to the end about verse 60, uh, 66, and it's going to break down and start talking about, uh, the singers and some of their, some of their tools and the things that they had and how those things have grown since we read about them in Ezra. And then they're going to talk about the gifts that were given because people were motivated. The wall, they felt safe, they felt secure, so they're giving. They're giving uh, money and gold and, and their abilities and of their time to the temple and to worship. But look, we, we, when we come, when we come to the end of, of chapter 7, I just want you guys to look at, at verse 73. It says, so the, so the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers and some of the people, oh man, serious? Why has it always got to be like that? Some of the people. Wouldn't you love it if it was all the people? Most of the people? And some of the people, the Nethanim and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Seventh month, that's a big month for Israel. Seventh month, man, that's... that's we, we come in to, to Passover, the, we come into the Day of Atonement, we come into the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, which we're going to read about. So there's some incredible opportunity for the people to, to celebrate all that God's done for them. The wall's up, the temple's up, things are happening, things are going on, but there's been a lot of construction. But now, the rest of Nehemiah is going to be about consecration. The city's ready. 
Now they're going to get the people ready. Now they're going to focus on them. So look at it says in, in chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in the front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So all the people gathered. Now this verse, I don't know if you guys like to write, I scribble all over my Bible. This verse, I go right back to Acts. When the, when the disciples are gathered in the upper room, you know what it says about them? They're all there and they're in one accord. And we're talking about 120 people or, or so, certainly more than the 12. And they're there and they're praying and they're in one accord. And what happens? God meets them there. That's, God meets you anytime you're gathered together as a body of Christ and you're praying in one accord. There's nothing more powerful than that. The enemy will do everything he can to stop it. Everything he can to keep God's people from coming together. Anything he can do. So it says in verse 2, So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So anyone who could understand. That doesn't tell us the age of the children. Some people would say the children, maybe they were 13. That would have been a legal age of understanding in the Hebrew society. That's when your bar mitzvah was and you were declared to be an adult. We declare kids to be an adult usually around 16. Um, it doesn't say that. What does it say? Those who could understand. Those who could, If they could understand, they were there. Now, I want you to check this out, because you think my service times are long. They're longer. (laughs) Look at verse 3. Then he read from it the word, the word of God. He read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Ezra read out of the word of God before all the people for six hours. And look what it says about it. Before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were what? Attentive to the book of the law. So they had seen the hand of God moving. They're in an exciting month. It's kind of the culmination of the, the return of the exiles. And the people are stoked about what they're hearing in the law. And some of those guys, listen, are hearing it for, you know, they're not... It's not something that they've done all their life. Remember, uh, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel came back first. And they, they got the temple up. But Ezra came back like 60 years later and had to teach the people about what the Word said. Because they didn't understand it. And 14 years later comes Nehemiah. And, and, and they're going through the same thing. Because God's people, whenever they come into a time of rest, what does history tell us happens to them? They... They fall away, right? They start thinking about something else. Something else becomes preeminent. The whole idea, guys, of the nation of Israel walking through the wilderness. What was the most important part of that? Who were they following? And they're following the Ark of the Covenant, the pillar of fire and the the cloud, right? So God's leading them. And then when that would stop... Wherever that stops, so that say the, the pillar of fire stops, what happened? The priests, the, all the people stopped, but the priests would carry that Ark of the Covenant right there to the Ark of the Covenant. Set that thing down, that was the Holy of Holies. And the tabernacle went up. And the people camped around it. God was preeminent. He was in the middle of everything they did. The temple was the center of everything that they did in, in Jewish life. Or it was supposed to be. The worship of God was to be central. It was why there was morning and evening sacrifice. Because God knew, we've got to stay on track, you and me, or you're going to forget me. You're going to forget who I am. And here they're excited and here they're listening for six hours, standing and hearing the reading of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood. Listen. And when they had, which they had made for the purpose. Platform like that. A pulpit. On a stage. Same kind of concept. He stood on this uh, platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand 
stood uh, Mattachiah and, and Shema, Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, Maaseiah, and on his left hand, Padiah, uh, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. So you thought I was crazy. Oh, they didn't stand for six hours, Jackie. There's no way they stood for six hours. He read for six hours, and when he opened the book, the people did what? They stood up. They stood up. They're like, it's hard to fall asleep standing up. (laughs) It's a lot easier to fall asleep sitting down. It's hard to do it when you're standing up. It's not impossible, but it's harder. So it says, and, and, he, and, and he opened it and all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen. All the people said, Amen. That's where that comes from. The, the gathering around of God's people to hear the word of God. And, and, and Ezra says, Man, God is great. <coughs> And all the people said, Amen. And they were, they were blown away by what God was doing in their midst and, and, and how God was with them. And they hadn't really seen nothing yet. There was so much more yet on the horizon for them. Well, they all shout, Amen, while doing what? Lifting up their hands. So they're standing and lifting up their hands. So a lot of times people worry about, you know, what's this lifting hands? You know, I'm not that Pentecostal. It don't have nothing to do with Pentecostal. Jews were doing it long before the Pentecostals. Lifting your hands is like looking up at your dad when you were a little kid and lifting your hands saying, pick me up, hold me. I love you, daddy. That's what that is, man. So we lift our hands. Now, I'm not saying you got to do one thing over another, over a different, over something else. But one of the things I always loved about about Calvary Chapel Buell, for the most part, Sunday mornings when worship started, people stood. Praise God. Raise their hands. Love the Lord. Sometimes I raise my hand, my shoulder gets sore. That ever happened to you guys? But you know what? I I, I know that's the devil trying to get me to think about something else. If I'm thinking about how much I love the Lord, just go away. Just go away. But I can put my hands down and I can love on the Lord my eyes to heaven no matter what. No matter where, no matter how I stand, no matter what I'm thinking. But these guys stood and they raised their hands to the heavens and they said, Amen. So be it. God is great. God is great. And then look what happens. Next phrase. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So you got it all. Every possible posture you could have of worship right there in verse 6. They're standing, their hands are raised, their heads are bowed, their faces are on the ground. They are proving a point. What you love, you'll praise. And as far as I'm concerned, the one thing God wants from you is to love Him with all your heart. And all that other stuff we worry about and all those other things that are important things, you know what? They all get swallowed up if you do that. If you love God with all your heart, trust me, you're walking with Him. You're not living in sin. You're not, you're not getting all caught up in bitterness and all that other stuff. If you're loving God with all your heart, it takes care of that. When He becomes our preeminent desire, I want Him. I got a I got a wonder. We've talked about it before. Maybe some of you guys have one too. My wonder wants things all the time. Uh, the other day I rode on on uh, George's motorcycle and I wanted to go to Harley Davidson and get a get a get a bike. My wonder wants. Look, the wonder is not evil. The things I want maybe aren't good, but that wonder God put in me. The problem is it needs to be focused on Him. I want him, for blessed is he who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, for what will happen? He will be filled. How many people run around this world empty? Why are they running empty? They got all kind of stuff. But you got to have, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and what? 
All that other junk, that'll get added. Seek Him first. Preeminence, right? That's what these people are doing, man. They're, the people are getting right with God. Things are going on. It says, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamim and Akub and Shabbatai and Hodijah and Malaseah and Kalida and Azariah and Jezebel and Hanan and Peliah and the Levites, listen, helped the people understand. So Ezra's up there reading the word. You guys ever been confused by what the word says? You're not the first ones. It happened in Nehemiah too. So you have all these guys, Levites and other guys who were more learned. And literally, listen, literally, come on, hear this. They're helping them to understand the Hebrew. Well, these guys speak Hebrew, don't they? Yeah, they've been 70 years in captivity. And the word was written a thousand years before that. So if you were to look at a Bible that was 600 years old, you think it would say the same thing yours says in front of you? Well, it says the same thing, but it's not the same words. You get what I'm saying? They didn't even spell things the same back then. I looked at the Gutenberg Bible. I pulled it up and looked at a familiar verse. And the only reason I knew what it said is because I knew the verse in normal English. (laughs) That kind of English, I was like, wow. It's not... Different words, it's helping them understand the original was intended. Is that different than, than what we do today? These guys came alongside, man. And so Ezra's up there teaching. And, and apparently during the six hours, there was probably some, some breaks or pauses. And these guys were trucking around and helping people understand. Hey, and they get in small groups. You got a big group happening and the word being spread. And then guys are going out into small groups and helping. Helping people get it. So that what? So helping people to understand the law. You know, anytime you see the law in the Old Testament, you might as well put the Bible. Because the law in the Old Testament was the, the Old Testament. Now we're just reading in Nehemiah, so obviously a lot of the stuff after isn't there yet. But a lot of the stuff from the prophets is. So they're reading it. And he's explaining it and he's telling them how to obey God and how to follow the Lord. And all those things are being done during a six-hour service. Explaining the word. And the people, as I said, people grumbled and said, let's get out of here. I'm going to be late. I, I, Garibaldi's will be full if I, we don't go soon. And that's not what they said. They said the people stood in their place. Wow. Jackie, don't get into these crazy ideas now. I'm already getting crazy ideas. You better watch out. So they read distinctly from the book, the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So it's just like we talk about today. Reading the word and then giving the sense, the explanation, what's going on, what's happening, and helping the people to grasp what's going on. That was happening all the way back in Nehemiah when they read the word. When the, when the people are getting right with the Lord, look what it says in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Now some people think this would have been the Feast of Trumpets. Perhaps the first day of uh, Tishri. It's possible. It doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is that they said this is a holy day and it's not right to mourn and weep. So what they had seen, and we'll see it in a minute, God's word was coming out and people are understanding God's word for the first time and they're recognizing, oh my gosh, uh, um, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a bad spot. I got to repent. I got to confess. I got to call on, on, on the Lord. And so they begin to ask for forgiveness and God is, is establishing forgiveness and he's pouring out his love on the people. What's natural when that happens? I don't know about you guys, but... Weeping is that I got saved and weeping was easy. I I can turn into a big old blubbering fool. When somebody gets saved, people walk up. I have not seen, I've seen tons of harvest crusades, never seen one I didn't cry. Because all them people walking up, I don't know all their stories and I don't know who's real and who's not, but I'm just so stoked that it's happening. That people are, are walking down and people are receiving and people are hearing. That weeping is necessary. But there is a time to rejoice. And Nehemiah and Ezra said, you're forgiven. You're restored. 
the city is built, the temple is ready, your hearts are right, it's not time to weep. You rejoice. Don't weep. This is a holy day. Rejoice for what God has done in your life. Rejoice for what's happening. So it couldn't be tears of mourning. It could be tears of joy. But it was to have that attitude of, of joyfulness. So, so they said, for the people wept when they heard the word of the law. So verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send the portions for those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord. What does it say? Is your strength. Look. It's, it is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. We don't want to get those flipped. We can mourn, we can weep for joy. That's different. That's not what they were doing. They're, they were cut to the heart and they were broken and they were, and they were crying out. But now through the Holy Spirit, these guys are saying rejoice. Rejoice. God loves you. You know how sometimes you, these people were low. You get what I'm saying? And God wants to lift them up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He does what? He wants to lift you up, right? So these guys are humble. And it's like God through His Spirit, through these leaders, is reaching down and saying, No, 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 no. No, come up. Come up. Rejoice. God loves you. Rejoice. God's giving you good things. Rejoice. God's doing good things in your life. Rejoice. There's time to mourn. Then it tells that in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, absolutely, there's a time to mourn. Is there a time to rejoice? Yeah, there is. And this was that time, man. He's saying, hey, rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is going to do that work in your life. So the, so the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way, listen, to eat and drink and send portions and rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly. Man, that's so vital. We got a bunch of sourpuss believers running around. I know I am one sometimes. And we can get all, you know, well, I was singing a song. I was singing a song because some different things that happen in a day probably doesn't happen to you guys. But it was Old McDonald had a farm. And one of the critters on the farm was drama. And so I was singing D-R-A-M-A, D-R-A-M-A, walking around, <clears throat> trying to keep myself from getting, you know, whatever, uptight about the stuff that people do in life. That we do to each other and whatever. I mean, we can all be guilty at different times. But the, the point is, the joy of the Lord is my strength, not the sourpussness. Not the big old downcast face and the downcast eyes and the weak knees and the hanging arms. What's God's word say about that? Come alongside a brother who's weak kneed and, and arms are weakened. Just like they did with Moses. What did they do with Moses when he couldn't hold up his arms? People came alongside and held him up. They didn't complain about him. Oh, that knucklehead's got his arms hanging down again. What's wrong with him? No, they just come and helped. They just came alongside God's really good at taking care of that stuff. He doesn't need our help. <laughs> well, other people might need our help. But God don't need our help. He's able. So these guys rejoice. And they rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. The word of God changes us. If there's going to be a revival, there's a lot of things that will be a part of that revival. But I guarantee no revival happens without the word of God. It's the word of God. That changes people's lives, it changes our hearts, it opens our eyes, that we go, wow, you know, and, and God speaks to us and meets us in that place. And not only did they understand the word, when we come to verse 13, they obeyed it. Man, check it out. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers, houses of all the people and the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. So they're still getting together. The second day. Six hours standing, hearing the word. You guys get the picture? So they come and they're, they're, the people show up day two. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths, 
during the feast of the seventh month. So now they're talking about the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of, of Tents, when they would go live in the tents out under the stars to remember the wandering in the wilderness and how God had been there been there with them and the pillar of fire and the cloud by day. And, and so the whole family would go out. It was like a camp out. The whole family would go out and camp and celebrate God. Celebrate what God had done. Tell the stories of God's faithfulness to their children. Teach them about those things. So they heard about it. From the 15th to the 21st of the 7th month. So look what it says. So, so that they should announce and proclaim in all the cities in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the mountain and bring all the branches and branches of oil trees and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booze as it is written. So they saw, hey, we're supposed to be in a tent that we make out of branches. Let's go. That not only did they hear the word, they chose to obey it. Even in a little thing. I'm, I'm not su- suggesting that God didn't care about this. But a lot of people read the Bible today and they think, oh, that's, a, that's just a little thing. I know the Bible says we're supposed to be married. But really, you know, we're married in God's eyes. That don't fly. That don't fly. They heard the word. Cut to the quick. Repent, call on the Lord, weeping. They are told through the Spirit, stand up and praise God. God's with you. They read the word the next day and they obeyed it. They did it. Because they loved God. And God said to do something. And they loved Him. They did it. They, they loved Him. God's love language, I love this, is obedience. Man, you want to... You want to show God you love Him? You do what He said. You, you do what He what He speaks in His Word. So, it says the people went out and brought them and made themselves booze. Each one uh, on <laughs> the roof of his house and in their courtyards or in the, in the courts of the house of God. And in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booze and sat under the booze. For since the days of Joshua... The son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. Now, it doesn't mean they never did it. We know there are other times they celebrated, but they never celebrated it like this. They never celebrated it with this much joy. They never celebrated it with this much obedience. They never celebrated this excited about doing what God was telling them to do. They were just, it was like a high point, man. It's a high point for them. They're coming together, and it, why? It says, it, the reason. And there was very great gladness. And they are just so stoked. Most happy, stoked, blown away times in my life is when I am closest to God. And it's not always when I'm closest to God and everything's going cool. Sometimes it's in the valley of the shadow of death. It's when I'm closest to God, that, that most joy, most gladness, most secure, most happy, most fulfilled, most, most satisfied is in those times. And that's what these guys are experiencing, man. And in chapter 8, there's this revival that started with the Word. We know they did two days, right? And the second day, they were studying the Word again. No reason to assume they didn't go six hours that day. And then how long was the, the Feast of Booths? That was seven days, right? From the 15th to the 21st. So it's possible that they did that stuff with the Word all the way from the 1st to the 15th. And then from the 15th to the 21st. And just in case you're thinking, well, maybe they stopped after 21 days of spending time in the Word and and hearing the reading of the Word. Because it was part of the tradition through the Feast of Booths, certainly those seven days, to read the entire law of God throughout Deuteronomy every single day. So I know they're in it. I know they're reading it. I know they're studying it. I know they're having understanding. Look what happens. Verse 18. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly. Do you know what that means? A sacred assembly means that at the end of seven days, they weren't done. A sacred assembly, the, the feast was seven days. You have a seven-day feast. The sacred assembly was a fast. 
They went from feasting to fasting. Isn't that cool? I think it's cool, man. They go from feasting to fasting. Look what it says. And on the eighth day, there's a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Now, if you're asking yourself, well, what did that look like? Don't worry about it. We're going to come to chapter 9 and we're going to read about it. So we look at chapter 9. Now on the 24th day, so remember I told you the Feast of Tabernacles went from the 15th to the 21st. So this is now three days later. You with me? Three days later, on the 24th day of the month, the children of Israel were assembled, what's it say? With fasting, in sackcloth, and with dust on their heads. So from the three days afterwards... They were not done hearing from God. They wanted more. They wanted more. God, what else you got for me? We're we're celebrating and we're doing all this stuff. And then they fasted. They said, man, you're so good to us. We got all this stuff. Look, fasting is not saying, okay, I'm going to give up uh, monsters. And uh, I'm going to pray that God gives me, you know, $10,000 to pay all my bills off. And and so everything can be hunky-dory. Some people fast like that. That's not a fast. A fast is when you're so focused on God, you forget to eat. You're, you're after God. Not just the six hours a day that they're reading the Word. Not just the time that they're learning and understanding and growing. But they were going after God so hard that three days after the fast, they're in sackcloth and ashes, dirt on their heads, Laying in the street, not just sitting there, you know, I'm, I'm like Job and my life is upside down. They're like, God, I want more of you. I want more. Don't ever be satisfied with what you have of the Lord, or what you experience of His Holy Spirit, or what you find in His Word. That is a recipe for disaster. Never satisfied. You always got to want more. Understand more, see more, get more, love more, know more, more and more and more. Man, we want more and more. So check it out. Look what they did in verse 2. So those of the Israelite lineage, now listen, they separated themselves from all foreigners. They separated themselves. That's holiness. The word for holiness just means to set yourself apart. So they set themselves apart from all distractions. They set themselves apart from the distractions of the world, right? They set themselves apart from the distractions of whatever's going on. What did they just separate from all the people that, that, you know, I don't know about this guy and I don't know about that guy. I, I'm, I'm going to be separated. It's not just about being separated from the world. It's being separated to God. All, whatever distractions, whatever needed to move. And look what it says. They separated themselves from all foreigners. And what's that next word? They did what? Stood. And they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So you are now 24 days of this. You guys getting the... This revival is intense, man. These guys are in the Word. They're in prayer. They're in worship. They're fasting. They're feasting. All this stuff is going on, and they're in a confession. So you see a separation from the world. You see a sanctification, a setting apart, a being made holy by their pursuit of God. And then look at verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. So something hadn't changed, right? And then, they, they bumped it. For one-fourth of the day they read, and for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord. That's 12 hours. They confessed and worshipped. They read, they confessed and worshipped. Man, do you see the intense thing God's doing in the hearts of the people? And that, that only happens when we come face-to-face with God's immeasurable worth. His value. What's God worth to you? What is He worth? There was a time God told the children of Israel, look, you guys kind of bug me, and 
I'm going to go ahead and give you the land, but I'm not going with you. You can have it. Cheers, but I'm done. And to their credit, they said, if you're not there, I don't want it. If God came to you and said, you could have heaven, all the people you ever wanted to be there, and all the stuff that you're hoping heaven is like, but he won't be there. If that is satisfy you, you don't know the value of God. And don't, there's no shortcut to finding the value of God. It's in that book on your lap. It's in understanding what he's done and what he's doing and what he's accomplished. And when you have that, you praise and you pray and you confess and you're hungry for his word because you understand the value. You understand the value. When I understood the value of my wife, I want to know her. I want to know her more. I want to know what she's thinking and how she's feeling. I want to, I want to help her. I want to rescue her. I want to do all those things. That's a human relationship. And Jesus said, unless your love for me makes all other relationships look like hate, you don't love me. That's a big difference, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, man. These people stand up and God's moving and God's doing things. And and then they and so they not only do they separate themselves from the world and to God, not only do they enter into a time of confession, not only do they then move to a point of consecration unto the word, right? They're set apart for the word, reading the word, studying the word, but then look what happens. Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani stood on the stairs with the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites and Jeshua and Kadmiel and Bani and, and Hashabaniah and Sherebiah and Hodijah and Shebaniah and Pethahiah said. So these guys all stand up. To me, man, it looks like that the, the Spirit is moving in these priests and in these guys who are... Uh, giving themselves over to the Lord, and they're going to speak a word. And you get to read it. They're all praying, they're all confessing, just get the picture. They're all going through all this stuff. And then all these guys who have been walking around teaching people and helping people, stand up and they start talking. <laughs> it says, they said. So they're, they're, I don't know if they're all in unison or what's going on, but it, I guarantee you is a trip. And they stand up, listen, and they say, stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. So they're calling out to the people, stand up and, and bless your God. So, so they move into this, this time of praise. What are they doing again? Standing up. And their hands are raised and they're praising God. And they talk about the greatness of God. Look at it. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts and the earth and everything that is in it. The sea and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. So he's talking about the greatness of God Almighty. And what, what's he start with? Creation. And what's the second thing? You're not only the creator, you're the sustainer. You made it all and you keep it all. Colossians gives the exact same statement about Jesus Christ. That he is the author of creation. And he is the one who does what? Holds it all together. Same phrasing. Then he goes on in verse 7 to talk about uh, the goodness of God. Look. You are the Lord God who chose Abram. Oh, this is, this is, don't miss this. You chose Abram who brought, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. Do you know what God added? He added the Ruach. He added the breath. The H. Abrach, the breath. That's what he put in Abraham. What does that signify? 
Jesus, when he was looking at his disciples, he breathed on them and said what? Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Were the disciples ever the same after that? Nope, they're progressing to something else. Was Abraham the same after God breathed into his name? What, what did he do to Sarai? He still did. And we all still do. And we still, even though the Holy Spirit is with us, right? But he had that gift. He had that gift, that faith, that, 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 that intangible direction of God's Spirit moving in him. And he did the same thing. Sarai, what did he change her name to? Sarah, the breath. He put the breath. It's that same letter in Hebrew is spirit. Put the spirit in him. It's kind of cool. He changed Abram to Abraham. He changed his character. What happens when somebody gets to become a believer? Their life changes, right? God give us a new name. He gives a new name. The book of Revelation says we're going to get a new name. Man, and, and so when we look at that and we concentrate on that, it's, it shows that change of character that happens in the life of someone who comes to faith. And, and in the very next word, what's it say? Why, why did God change His name? You found His heart faithful before you. How do we please God? Faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. For you must believe that He is. And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Man, so he had a faithful heart. How are we saved? We're saved by faith. How are we justified? We're justified by faith. Faith in Christ, right? So you found his heart faithful before you and made a, a covenant, a promise with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. And then look at this proclamation. You have performed your words for you are righteous. So, the guys in Nehemiah's time are saying to God, you did what you promised to Abraham. Then look at the next part. We're talking about God's goodness. Talking about God's goodness. Look at all the things God saw, God did, God knew. You saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed the signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against him. So you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone in the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them day by day with a cloudy pillar, and by night a pillar of fire, to give them the light on the road which they should travel. Listen, then you came down. God, I love that. All these things that you see God seeing and knowing and hearing and and being and working, and then when it comes to that phrase, you come down. I can't help but see prophetic value, you know, to the concepts of all that He did for them. He came down to Sinai. They still say, I've never got to see the real Sinai. I've been to Israel seven times, and um, the real Sinai, I think, is in Saudi Arabia, so it's, it's not easy to get to the real one. But they say, haven't seen it, they say it looks like it's still charred from when God stood on it. Because He stood on Mount Sinai. The lightning and the thunder and the glory. And God said, if an animal touches this, you shoot it. This place is holy. And it still looks charred. That's what I hear. One day, maybe before I die, I get to see it. If not, I'll get to see the new one. Or maybe there won't be one at all and we won't worry about it. But the idea that God came down, He spoke to the people. He spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinance and true laws and good statutes and commandments. So you got just ordinances, true laws, and good statutes. Remember when we talk about statutes? Statutes is that word that indicates the sacrificial system. So it points to, you got these, these ordinances, these commandments, these laws, these directives. But at the same time God gave all that, He gave a sacrificial system. Why? Because if man could just do it, he wouldn't need a sacrificial system, would he? Just do it. He knew man couldn't do it, so he gave them a sacrificial system, the statutes, a way to make them right before God and to show them 
the coming of a better sacrifice, as Hebrews lays out for us um, when you get a chance to study it. So look, you made known to them your holy Sabbath. That holy day that God set apart. Now, who's that? Who's the Sabbath given to? Not given to us. It's given to Jews. It's given to Israel. It's given directly to Israel, not to the Gentiles. It was a it was a covenant. Now, does that mean that I'm saying don't uh, honor the Sabbath? Don't uh, um, keep the Sabbath holy? Knock yourself out. Do those things. Paul said some esteem one day, others esteem another day. You just figure it out in your head what you're going to do, and you do it. Be faithful to your conscience in that regard. But the covenant of the Sabbath was specifically to the nation of Israel. If if you, when we read in uh, in Revelation, we talk about, uh, or I'm sorry, when we read in Matthew, when they talk about pray that the Antichrist doesn't reveal himself at the at the, uh, the, the abomination of desolation during winter time or on the Sabbath. Now, what would that matter here? What happens on the Sabbath here? Freeways are still as full as they were any other time. The planes are still flying. Things are still going off. Where does it matter? In Israel. Brother, let me tell you, you push a button on an elevator on Sabbath and see what happens. Every floor, it stops, it's called a Shabbat elevator. That way you don't have to push a button again. Because pushing a button can signify a spark and could equal work. So the elevator, you don't have plane flights. You don't have stuff going on. That's shut down. It was a covenant between God and His people. Look, it's exactly what He's saying here. You have made known to them, the nation, your holy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them, I love this phrase, bread from heaven. He didn't call it manna. He didn't call it, what's this? He called it bread from heaven. Jesus is going to call Himself the true bread from heaven, right? He gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tell us about that rock? That rock is Christ. That's what the Bible says. That's what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. The rock that gave them water is Christ. So when you sing that that song that talks about uh, the cleft of the rock, you guys know what I'm talking about? That's what it's talking about. The cleft, that wound in the rock from which the water sprang. To give the people life. Only he's going to get, you only do what, hit that rock one time, right? Moses kind of messed that deal up. You hit that rock one time because Jesus is only going to get hit once. So then, then, the, then the water comes rushing out. Rock is Christ. So he, you gave them bread from heaven, talks of Christ. The water from the rock speaks of Christ and told them to go in and possess the land which you had uh, sworn to give them. But, every time you see that word but in your Bible, circle it and write contrast next to it. Because every time that word comes up, but, it's a word of contrast. God's going to contrast. Here's what God has done. All these good things. You saw, you heard, you helped, you came down, you gave the bread, you gave the water, you gave all this stuff. But, they and our fathers acted proudly and hardened their necks and did not heed your commandments and refused to obey. And they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks. In their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. So God got them out of Egypt and the people put themselves back in. And God takes them out of Egypt and the people put themselves back in. Egypt becomes a picture of the world and the being in that right relationship with Christ, a picture of His rest, and we still go through that same stuff today, don't we? We should just be able to plan ourselves right in the rest of Christ with Him. But our depravity pulls us back to Egypt, pulls us back to the junk, pulls us out to the garbage. But, word of contrast again, you see it? But you are God. Listen. Ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Does God give up? Ooh, man. The hound of heaven gets his claws into you. Just give up. He won't stop. He loves you so much, he already sent his son. What else would he not give? To see you a part of the family. God will do 
everything God can do. But he won't make you receive him. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is our God that brought you up out of Egypt. And they worked great provocations. The depravity of man. What does the depravity of man do? It irritates God. It it causes great provocation. Provokes him. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. Listen to what God did to a disobedient and contrary people. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by the day. God still led to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way that they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth. Now he calls it manna. Interesting. And gave them water for their thirst from that rock. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. That's not all God did. He keeps going. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. And they took possession of the land of Sihon and and the land of the king of Heshbon and the land of Og, uh, the king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children like the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land and the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wish. And they took strong cities from a rich land and Possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards and olive groves already planted, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Man, God did a lot of good things, right? Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs Killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they were great provocations. Human depravity at work. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hands of their enemies. So they're still contrary, still disobedient. God would bring the chastening, right? The discipline. And that discipline would cause them to cry out, Lord, save us. And what did God do? He came. He came. He saved. He reached. He loved. But... Word of great contrast. After they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hands of their enemies. So that they had dominion over them. It's interesting. From this point, guys, historically, from uh, the fall of the nation until Jesus Christ and the destruction in 70 AD, they are always in the hands of an oppressor. God never gives them a king again. They're only going to have one other king. One more king. From a line of David, right? Just one. Jesus. He'll be the king. They might be momentarily fooled by a pretender. But ultimately, they're going to put their faith and trust in the king of kings. So he he leaves them in the hands of the enemy. Yet when they return and cried out to you... You heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercy, and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, and stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Doesn't say could not hear. Would not hear. Then we have the grace of God in verse 30 on. Yet for many years you had patience with them 
and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. And they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, listen to this. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Didn't obliterate them. God loves them. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty and awesome God, who keeps His promises and mercy... Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on your people. For the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. you imagine saying that? That's pretty awesome, man. 70 years of captivity, hard things that they've been through, children taken from parents, crazy hard life. You are right in all that has befallen us. One of the most important things we can ever do when God is disciplining and working in our life is not stiffen our neck, but bow our head. Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. I accept your chastening, your direction, your discipline, whatever you're doing in my life, you're right to do it. I probably deserve worse. Submitting to God is the key to resisting the devil. So this is what he does. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them. Nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, in the land that you gave to our fathers, to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. You hear what they're saying? We don't own it. Belongs to somebody else. We're here in it. But it's not theirs again until 1948. That's a long time, man. We are servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us. Because of our sins... Also, they have dominion over our bodies, our cattle, at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. So, again, their depravity. God's done a lot of good, continues to do a lot of good. Human depravity says, we keep ending up in this same spot. And here I am now, I'm in distress because we're servants, we're slaves. Listen, last thing, because of all this. We will make a sure covenant and write it. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. Chapter 10 is the list of the names who sign it. They write this whole thing that we just read. They write it out. And at the bottom they say, sign this. And every man, woman, child, person who can write with a pen who's in that court that's done 24 plus days of reading the word and been ministered to by the spirit of God and calling on the name of the Lord and all the things that God's been doing and all the incredible things that have gone on and all the hard things that have happened in their life. They sign that. That says, no matter what, I'm still going to follow you. And that's some, one of the most important things any of us can ever come to say. No matter what happens. No matter what's going on. Chew and me till the wheels fall off. I'm, I want to, I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste it. And if I live for any other glory than the glory of God Almighty, I'm wasting my life for him in whatever you do do all for what the glory of God isn't that what the word says everything you do do for the glory of God I want to do it for him that doesn't mean I can't enjoy life don't get wrapped around the axle like that you can God gave us all things to enjoy didn't he 
Sure he did. Absolutely he gave us things to enjoy. He gave us life to enjoy. He gave us a husband and wife to enjoy. He gave us a family to enjoy. He gives us a world, beautiful, gorgeous world we can go out and look at, especially if you live in Idaho, and you look around and you think, man, this is awesome. It's all for us to enjoy, but not to worship. I don't worship that. I worship the one who give that. And when I see that beauty, it reminds me how much I owe thanks to God for what he's given me. And I can glorify him in that. I can glorify him in nature. I can glorify him wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing. It's for him. For him. Every, time, every moment is an opportunity to bring, to bring glory to the Lord.